Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 201. It's titled, Is Your Portfolio Unbalanced? April and I, as you know, have been traveling across the U.S., and recently we have made a short stop in Ohio before heading out west again. And one of the things that you know, we're in southern Ohio in the Cincinnati area, is the Bradford pears are blooming everywhere. This is a tree. It has beautiful white flowers. And this is a tree that many towns in in this area, Montgomery, Madeira, have planted along their tree lines. It was introduced in the mid-60s by the U.S. Department of Agriculture as really almost the perfect tree for towns to embrace. Except it's not quite that perfect. The tree was supposed to be sterile, so it wasn't able to to self-pollinate. But it turns out that while two Bradford pears cannot reproduce among themselves, they cross-pollinate from other pear tree types. And what you see is sort of hybrid pears, trees, can can pollinate. This is, there is an article in the Greenville News, Greenville, South Carolina, by Durant Ashmore. And he writes, what you're looking at are calorie pears destroying nature. So please don't get giddy with excitement over pretty white flowers. Calorie pears have four-inch thorns. They can't be mowed down. Those thorns will shred John Deere tractor tires. They can only be removed by steel track dozers, decreasing the value of agriculture or forest land to the tune of $3,000 per acre. And we saw this in southern Ohio. While the trees that are planted along the side of the road, say in, in downtown Madeira, are beautiful as you head out into the countryside, particularly along the highway, there are Bradford pears everywhere because the wild version has taken over. And you look, they do, they have thorns. And it's an example of an unattended consequence that we have expectations. The cities expected they were planting a sterile tree to line their tree-lined streets. And now they have sort of this epidemic uh, of Bradford pears, the wild version, calorie pears, everywhere. And they're they're effectively competing with the other invasive species in southern Ohio. It's a a honeysuckle, the Amur honeysuckle. It's everywhere, and it has been since I was a child. Much of it was planted in the 50s 
in, in this area as hedges or to c- control er- erosion. It's native of Western China, but now it is everywhere around here, and it, it crowds out the the native wildflowers, red buds. But, but it's coming; it's meeting its match with the the calorie pear tree. But investing is like that also. We have expectations, and then we have surprises, unintended unintended consequences. Whenever we invest in any asset, we have expectations about what the future will come in terms of economic growth and inflation and even the path of interest rates. We talked about that a few episodes ago in terms of of a bond bear market. What influences interest rates, longer-term rates, are expectations for what short-term rates will be in the future, that path of short-term interest rates. Plus, a a term premium that investors usually demand, they aren't right now, but usually demand, in case those expectations differ, in case there's a surprise or inflation comes in higher. And if inflation comes in higher than expected, then interest rates increase and the value of bonds fall. But if inflation comes in higher than other asset classes, like commodities, for example, will do better because commodities are priced based on future expectation of of oil, natural gas, and other commodity assets. And when expectations come in higher, there's a surprise on the upside, then the commodities go up in price. Stocks are are very much the same way. With stocks, there's some expectations priced into stocks, individual stocks, as well as across sectors across the entire market of what growth will be in terms of corporate earnings, which is tied to economic growth. And if if earnings come in faster than expected, if the economy grows faster than expected, then econ- and then stocks go up. But all of these surprises, there can be a negative. If, if it comes in slower than expected, then prices fall. These changing expectations is what leads to market volatility and potentially capital losses. The surprise, the, the bad surprises, things that we didn't want to happen, can lead to losses. And as those changing expectations of investors leads to that market volatility. And if you want to avoid market volatility and capital losses, what you do is you hold cash. Growing up here in Cincinnati, we played tag a lot as when I was small. And you always had a home base, somewhere that you could touch and not be tagged it. But the game wasn't any fun if everybody just clung on to home base. In investing, we can hold cash, but we also can, if we want to earn some additional return, an excess return above cash, We have to leave home base. We have to leave cash. We have to go out into the investment wilderness and hopefully generate an excess return. Now, that excess return is compensation that investors demand for this volatility and for the risk of capital loss. We have a new member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus, Shane. He's from Canada, and he recommended a book this week 
fascinating book. It's called Balanced Asset Allocation, How to Profit in Any Economic Climate. The book was written by Alex Shahidi, S-H-A-H-I-D-I. And he does now what I used to do. He's an institutional investment consultant. So he advises pension plans, endowments, and foundations. He was with Merrill Lynch. Now he has his own firm, Eris. And there's so much about this book that I agree with. We are on the same page. But there's things that I don't agree with in terms of the implementation, which we'll get to. But he writes, the goal is to capture excess returns over time and to do so with as little risk as possible. And again, we're defining risk as volatility and the risk of capital loss. He goes on, the more volatile the return, the greater the risk of capital loss. And that's, that's correct. And that's something I don't always emphasize. Because, for example, with the asset allocation tools of Money for the Rest of Us Plus, we're not focused on building portfolios or the tools don't model volatility like traditional modern portfolio theory. We look at what's the worst case capital loss. But it is true that more volatile asset classes have a greater risk of capital loss. There there are return outcomes. They react more vehemently to negative surprises and can push that return outcome into negative territory, more likely to happen. And he points out that asset class returns are volatile due to, again, the change in expectations Shifts in the economic environment, which is something that, that I am always monitoring in terms of changes in economic trends. Asset classes are volatile due to risk, shifts in risk appetite, investor fear, and greed. Shahidi writes, at times we are greedy for a higher return than cash offers and are willing to accept less for the same amount of risk. At other points in time, we are fearful of losses and will only take risk if outsized returns are offered. Interestingly, greed often follows good periods and fear comes after severe downturns. This emotion tends to be a reactive rather than a proactive phenomenon. And that's certainly something we monitor money for the rest of us plus, the level of fear and greed. And when the fear is high, the potential excess return is often high because valuations have fallen. And so asset classes are volatile due to this shift in economic environment, the economic trends due to this shift in risk appetite, the market internals. And then he points out the shift in expectations of future cash rates, the path, the future path of short-term interest rates, which we know, as we talked about, impacts Interest rates are bond yields, longer-term rates, but those expectations for cash rates influences other asset classes and how volatile. As rates, as longer-term rates go up, we pointed out a few weeks ago that the higher the interest rate, the lower the price-to-earnings ratio on stocks. Valuation falls because investors are, are essentially... What a stock is, it's future potential cash flow. As 
rates go up, the value of those future earnings falls in terms of just the present value in today's dollar. So there's a relationship between the valuations and interest rates. And again, those interest rates are tied to expectation of short-term rates. So all of these expectations results in market volatility. And we're willing to accept that, that as potential loss for that excess return. He goes on, when you decide to convert your safe cash into an asset class, you do so with the expectation that at some point in the future, you will be able to convert it back to cash at a profit. If you did not expect this, then you would not accept the risk of losing money. More precisely, you convert cash into another asset with some expectation about future about the future ec- economic climate. You have this expectation because in order to profit from the exchange, you factor in what future growth and inflation will be. Your expectation of inflation matters because you want to be compensated in real terms for the risk that you are taking. And that's why you're moving in the first place out of cash because cash oftentimes will not generate a real return above inflation. Currently, it's not. You lose money on inflation-adjusted basis. And then he says, you need the return achieved from taking risk to exceed the rate of inflation in order for you to improve your purchasing power. That, as I advise endowments, that was the whole purpose, to maintain the purchasing power of that endowment, to benefit future generations. But it came in as a a cost. The cost cost of capital loss, potential capital loss. The cost of volatility. So each market segment, he goes on. So we we look at stocks, we look at bonds, commodity, inflation-hedged assets. They all have inherent biases to various economic environments. Rising growth, as we saw, economic growth tends to be favorable for stocks. It's favorable for commodities. Falling growth, so interest rates fall when growth expectations fall because the the path of short-term rates is supposed to be lower. Fed will not be as aggressive in raising short-term rates. So as growth falls, that tends to benefit bonds. Rising inflation benefits inflation-hedged assets like treasury inflation protection securities, tips, and commodities. And falling inflation helps stocks and traditional bonds. And, and that's just what investing is. So we, we have these different portfolio drivers. As an institutional advisor, we, we actually broke up the asset mixes into the differing roles. Does it benefit from growth? Does it do better in inflation? Does it do better with slower growth? And that's why we don't just hold one asset class. We hold multiple asset classes. But the most fundamentally revealing characteristic of this book, the thing that I, I, it was a great, great reminder, was the point that while we might think that we are diversified by economic roles, the reality is most investors have a heavy bet, a huge bet 
that on economic growth because they're overweighted stocks. And because they're overweighted stocks, stocks tend to be more volatile. And then they'll have bonds, shorter-term bonds, that aren't as volatile. And because stocks are more volatile, even a portfolio that that might have 50 to 60% stocks, over 90% of the return is driven by the performance of the portfolio's return is driven by that, the stocks. Because the bonds, the volatility is very narrow, very narrow around a range. And so in any given year, might be a little bit more or a little bit less than average. But stocks can be much greater than their long-term average or much less. And so that whipsawing of stocks means the overall portfolio is driven, the return is primarily driven by those stocks. And it's highly correlated to stocks, up to 95, 99% correlated to the stock market, a portfolio that could be 40% bonds. Before we look at Shahidi's solution for these these stock-heavy portfolios, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in my profession, I've seen how important it is to get quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn can help you with that. It's not just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. So hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Shahidi writes, if you emphasize the high expected returns of stocks and build a portfolio with the expectation that you will earn those returns, then you will be putting yourself in the unenviable position of having too high a probability of underachieving your expectations. Moreover, if the success of your portfolio requires equities to perform well, then you are effectively putting all of your eggs in the equity basket. Recall that most portfolio combinations using the conventional perspective lead to portfolios that have a high correlation to equities, which signifies an over-reliance on this asset class. There has to be a better approach. His solution is to own asset classes that are as volatile as stocks, but that perform better in different economic regimes. In other words, an asset class that does well during periods of high inflation when stocks don't do as well. But it isn't enough to own short-term inflation-protected securities. In order to have that inflation hedge drive performance, it needs to do extremely well when inflation is above expectations. And so he recommends 30% in 
long-term treasury inflation protection securities. Bonds that could go up double digits when rates fall and vice versa. He recommends 20% in commodities, a very volatile asset class, 20% or 30% in long-term bonds, regular bonds, so not inflation-protected bonds, and 20% in stocks. So instead of being stock-heavy, 20% in stocks, 20% in commodities, 30% in long-term bonds that, again, are very, very volatile, like stocks, and 30% in long-term treasury inflation protection securities. Now, this recommended portfolio is influenced by the work of Ray Dalio of Bridgewater Associates and author of the book Principles. This is a version of what is sometimes known as the all-weather portfolio, the version known as the permanent portfolio, but it's the idea to have asset classes for different economic regimes. But what's Unusual about this is the volatility. So he has some data in the book from 1927 to, through 2013. Shows the average excess return for stocks is 5.6%. And the volatility is measured by standard deviation. The range of historical outcomes around the median or the mean is 19, 19%. Long-term treasuries have average excess return of only 1.4%. The volatility is 10%. Long-term tips, the average excess return is 4.6%. Now, they, they sort of derived the, these longer-term returns because tips haven't been around, certainly haven't been around since 1927. This is data that he got from Bridgewater Associates. But the average volatility is 11%. And then commodities, the average excess return above cash is 2%, and the volatility is 17%. So all of them are highly volatile, which means when one is doing well, the other typically could be having negative returns, capital losses, and and collectively, they generate a, a decent excess return above cash. But then it's not a portfolio that is driven where all the outcome is driven by stocks. And as I read the book, I, I sometimes when I read books like this that I, I know are well thought out and, and contradict how I invest, makes me a little nervous. It's like, oh, maybe I've been investing wrong all these years. Shane felt the same thing. He wrote me, he writes, conceptually, I like the framework, Shane being the member of Money for the Restless Plus that recommended it. Conceptually, conceptually, I like the framework, but modern portfolio theory has been drilled into me for so long, I have trouble considering only a 30% allocation to equities as a long-term strategy. I have a 20-year time horizon for targeted retirement. And since I'm willing to accept some volatility and potential drawdowns for higher returns, I'm in the 70 to 80% weight in equities. But this runs contrary to it. It does. This is a very, very different approach. 
Now, one of the things that the author writes that I disagree with is he does not believe you can identify changes in regime, potential bear markets where growth is going to fall, when inflation is going to be well above normal. I do. I think they can be identified. And as investors, we can can adjust their risk based on current market conditions. Not predicting, but based on some of the red flags that occur. He doesn't. And, he, and most investors probably can't. But the investors that are, are aware and don't get emotionally caught up in bull markets and, and go out and buy Bitcoin at 20000 or stocks when the, the FANG stocks, the Facebooks of the world, when they have an extremely high price-to-earnings ratio. So we need to be aware. But his approach, if you don't want to be trying to adjust based on economic regime changes and don't want a portfolio that is heavily overweighted and driven by stocks, then this is a different approach. Having the allocation to commodities and tips and long-term bonds and stocks. Now, he goes over the historical returns. I was still a little squeamish about this approach because I care about going forward. And if we look at those historical excess returns and those recommended weights, again, there's excess returns above cash. If we look at current cash returns, so the current cash yields about 1.7%, then this weight of 20% stocks 20% commodities, 30% long-term treasuries, and 30% treasury inflation protection securities, that is an expected return of 5.02%. And which is somewhat in line with, let's say, a 70-30 stock portfolio, 70% stocks, 30% bonds, given current expectations. My expectations for stocks over the next decade based on current dividend yields, current valuations, and, and the expectation for economic growth is, is only 5.6% annualized. That's the nominal return. Whereas cash rates now plus 5.6%, the historic, historical excess return gets you 7.3%. So I'm at 5.6%. My expectation for long-term treasuries is 2.9% based on their current yield to maturity. Historically, based on current cash yields, they will have returned 3.1%. The historical expectation for long-term treasury inflation protection securities with that 4.6% premium plus 1.7% cash yield, that gets you up to 6.3% for tips. We're not going to get anywhere near there. The current yield on a 20-year tip, the real yield, is 0.8%. And if you get that, plus, let's say, 2.5% for inflation, your return is 3.2%. That's the expectation there. And commodities, commodities are tough. 2% excess return above cash, that's only about 3.7% which means your expectation, a reasonable expectation with current investment conditions 
over the next decade is only 3.7% return. That's really low. And then you got these these different assets. They're all very volatile. Now, I went back and said, well, how would this have done historically with real ETFs that are available today? So I used the PowerShare DB Commodity Tracking ETF, DBC. I used TLT, the iShares 20-year-plus U.S. Treasury Bond ETF. I used the ACWI, the iShares MSCI All-Country World Index ETF. And then I used the PIMCO 15-plus-year U.S. TIPS ETF. So I, I did the weights according to his recommendations, 20% in stocks, 20% in commodities, 30% each in long-term trip tips and long-term bonds. It returned 5.18% over the – it would only go back to 2010. So about a seven-plus-year period return. The volatility was 6.7%. Now, we compare that to a 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio. That returned 6.8%. So a growth-heavy, growth-reliant, stock-overweight portfolio did much better, 6.8% over this historical time period, about a 7.9% standard deviation. So it was a little more volatile, but it returned almost 1.8% higher than this, this more balanced approach. But it would have taken some patience. The five-year annualized return was only 2.2% for years ending December 31st, 2017. Three years, it did 3.1%. And so one of my concerns is, yes, this might work. And it makes intuitive sense. But the starting conditions are so low in terms of the yield for bonds, particularly for tips right now, that I just I would have a hard time implementing it. I think it would be hard for a, an investor to have such a high allocation to commodities. Commodities over the past five years, DBC, has returned negative 7.8% annualized over the last five years. 7.7% annualized for the 10 years. It's a very long period of experiencing bad times for commodities because we've been in a commodities bear market. And commodities bear markets tend to last 20 years. Some data from Ned Davis Research shows that the average commodity bear market is 20 years long with an average loss of 50.9%. The current bear market started in 2011. Commodities have lost cumulatively 37%, but we're only seven years in. Now, maybe it won't be a 20-year commodity bear market, but it's a long, long time. Commodity bull markets tend to last about 16 years, and the average gain is 217%. The commodity bull market that went from 1999 to 2011, commodities were up 270%. And I have a love-hate relationship with commodities because the excess return is so low, and they're so volatile, and 
you don't get any income to sort of mitigate some of that volatility. But he is correct. When you look at the data, this is from Ned Davis Research, when the CPI, Consumer Price Index, is over 5%, so inflation is high, and inflation is increasing, commodities, as represented by the S&P GSCI Index, have returned 18% per year. When inflation is low, but it's rising, commodities have returned 20% per year. But when inflation is falling, either from a high level or from a low level, commodities have been negative. And so right now, one of the things that we're looking at is, is inflation increasing? A lot of people are recommending commodities right now, pundits, but we're only seven years into a commodities bear market. And we can have up cycles within a bear market, and maybe we're poised for that. But would you put 20% of your portfolio in commodities and in long-term bonds? It's worked long-term. Going forward, I think the expectations are low. I think the reasonable expectation for the portfolio is only about 4%. But it's an intriguing, intriguing approach. And the fundamentals sound to have different portfolio drivers, different economic roles. My solution, because I would have a hard time implementing this. Some people could and do. And, and the foundation is solid. I prefer to monitor investment conditions and make adjustments, make risk adjustments. I do have a large percent of my, my portfolio in inflation-hedged assets, up to 40%. But a lot of them are real assets. I own land, I own gold, something that's not as volatile as commodities and has a, potentially doesn't have such low yields. I own assets that have high excess returns that aren't volatile. I do some asset-based lending. I've lended on buildings or other property where the return is 7%, assuming no default. But you have protection there. You have a margin of safety because they put up 50% equity. So there are other solutions out there, but I, it, it's a fascinating book. I would encourage you to read it. It's a little pricey, about $35. But having different asset classes for different economic roles is makes sense. And recognizing that portfolios that just have stocks and bonds, the performance is going to be driven by what's going on in the stock market. 90% plus correlated to the stock market. We have to recognize that. And that's why most portfolios, traditional portfolios, are indeed unbalanced. And there's different ways that we can mitigate that. Having assets outside of public securities markets is one way to mitigate that. And that's, that's the primary way that I do it, as well as some of these other things I've talked about. So that's episode 201. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. And while you're there, go ahead and sign up for my free insider's guide. And I'll email you weekly an, an essay. That I do. Last week, I, I wrote about how inflation hedged my portfolio was and, and gave some examples of that and some of the risk of inflation. So you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. And in that weekly email, I, I just send you those weekly show notes or links. And that's at moneyfortherestofus.com. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. 
Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not provided investment advice. It's just simply education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.